to introduce the artist David Batchelor, um, who's going to talk about psychogeometry. Thank you very much, Bryony, for that <coughs> fulsome introduction. Um, <laughs> Oh, where's my paper? Right. This, uh, yes, it's called The Psychogeometry of Triangular Repeats. And, um, well, first of all, uh, here you have the, uh, another uh, study for the Camino Real um, work from 1967. Uh, a couple of months ago, I was contacted by the BBC about taking part in one of a series of programmes they were planning to celebrate the centenary of the founding of the Bauhaus. Um, this particular production about the Vorkos teaching program at Weimar and Dessau would, I was told, uh, take the form not of a documentary, but rather of a series of classes uh, that would be taught by a number of experts and to a group of volunteer students. Uh, I was invited to be the expert uh, on Kandinsky's colour theory classes which sounded fine, uh, until I realised that the model for this programme wasn't derived from the preliminary course at the Bauhaus at all, but the main course of MasterChef, um, or Bake Off, or some such cookery programme on telly. Uh, some of this is not going to translate to the, our international guests, but you can Google it. You know what I mean... Um, <clears throat> And the host of the event uh, wasn't to be some latter-day Walter Gropius, but the comedian Vic Reeves, uh, creator of Vic and Bob's Big Night Out and Shooting Stars, both programmes that, incidentally, I I like a lot. Um, Again, Google it. Um, The filming was to take place over six days uh, in in a studio at at Central St. Martin's College in King's Cross, Mercifully, I was only needed for one of these days, as the others were to deal with different aspects of the Vorkos, typography, architecture, and and so forth. Anyway, uh, my day didn't work out too well, Uh, not at at least from my point of view. Uh, In my scheduled discussion with Vic, uh, Vic Reeves was actually a fine art student at Goldsmiths College um, during the sort of... YBA-ish days, uh, hence I think his continued sort of preoccupation with aspects of 20th century art. Um, in my scheduled discussion with Vic, uh, I wanted to discuss something of Kandinsky's metaphysics and cosmology, if that's the right term, and I wanted to describe his theory of colours within a broader idealist worldview, one that was attempting to hold its position while balancing on the violently shifting tectonic plates of European culture after the Russian Revolution and the armistice. Jim, on the other hand, wanted to know why triangles always had to be yellow. I I mean, it's a reasonable question. Um, But, as ever, a reasonable answer to such a reasonable question would take a little time, uh, and that simply wouldn't fit the TV schedules. Uh, a reasonable answer would have to explore the question, uh, to discuss notions of platonic forms, Goethe's colour theories, uh, the Hegelian movement of the spirit, theories of synesthetic correspondence and such like. And by then, of course, Master Chef would be over and we'd be halfway through the news at 10 or the Graham Norton show. 
I think I wrote this over Christmas when I was watching too much television. But, um, anyway, this paper is, uh, uh, to some extent, a sketch of what a more or less reasonable answer to Vic's Reeve question uh, might, might be. Um, it's tempting to blame television uh, for this state of affairs where everything is about short answers and short attention spans. Um, and there is something... <clears throat> there is something immensely frustrating about the lack of attention to detail that appears to pervade the media. It is tempting to blame the media uh, for this. At least it would be if I felt certain that artists and art critics and art historians were not themselves prone to rather similar forms of generalization and nuance avoidance activity. Uh, but I fear we're not as free from it as we might like to imagine we are. In particular, there are two areas where this lack of specificity um, and recourse to shorthand bothers me uh, in the discussion of abstract art. And I was reminded of both when I visited the very brilliant uh, Annie Albers exhibition at, at Tate. For some time, I've, um, I've been bothered by the use of two particular terms, both of which are obviously central uh, to and have a proper place in the discussion of Alba's work and of abstract art throughout the 20th century, uh, and have become a kind of universal shorthand and have, as a result, I think, uh, become something of an obstruction to looking. The first term is geometry, and the second term is repetition. I should say that it wasn't the exhibition uh, or the accompanying catalogue essays that bothered me in the, on this occasion at all. Rather, it was simply that the work of Albers reminded me how important it is to explore these two terms carefully. Otherwise, it seems to me, we risk missing much of the complexity of her work. Um, a, a, a detail from a preliminary design for wall hanging 1926 in the previous uh, yellow and grey drawing was another of the Camino Real studies uh, for me a key to Alba's work is the way uh, that they draw us to geometric forms or to be more specific to rectangles and squares in the earlier work and to triangles and to be more specific still to right angle triangles in the later work they draw us to these forms, but they also draw us away from them. These forms are never givens, never things that we can take for granted. They are made and they are unmade in each drawing, in each study, and in each bolt of fabric. The same is the case for many artists, uh, I believe, who are experimenting with the possibility of a fully abstract art during the 1910s and 1920s, uh, for Malevich, for Popova, for Mondrian and for many others, what habitually gets called geometric abstraction in most cases simply isn't geometric or it isn't in any simple sense. Uh, incidentally, I, I prefer the term planar abstraction, uh, which it seems to me is both more literally descriptive uh, and more neutral and less likely to mislead. <coughs> um, 
obviously Malevich's Red Square from 1915. A couple of years ago, or actually more than that now, I guess, uh, during the Malevich retrospective at Tate, um, and in the course of developing a talk about his work, uh, I decided to check Malevich's geometry. Uh, And here's the thing. Uh, There isn't any. Um, There's not a single square in Malevich's encyclopedic uh, um, body of squares that is actually square. Each form is visibly, willfully, and playfully pulled out of true. It is not just stretched or distorted. It is, in some cases, I think, caricatured or parodied. That's more evident, perhaps, in some of the drawings uh, than in the paintings, although you can obviously see here where the the square is clearly not square and everyone knows it. Um, And there's not a single square visible in, for example, this painting also from... Well, I've got it here from 2015. I suspect it's 1915. So what was it for Malevich and for others that seemed to require the simultaneous summing up, summoning up, and the sabotage of geometry? And following uh, that question, how was this ambivalence, this simultaneous attraction to and repulsion from the geometric, how was this ambivalence achieved and demonstrated in their works? Uh, a Popova um, abstraction from uh, composition from 1921. Uh, it's hard to imagine now what it could have been like in the 1910s and the 1920s to experiment with making a kind of art that appeared to have no precedent in European culture, to break with a tradition, a mighty tradition of representation of the human figure and the human figure in space uh, and so forth. What on earth could you put in its place? One answer, and probably a facile one, is that the basic shapes that we associate with geometry could become figures to inhabit a space in which the figure no longer had a place. More than that, the triangle, the circle, and the square are are interpersonal. They're cross-cultural and trans-historical figures, figures that pre-exist the individual that uses them and can therefore be recognized and passed around independently of that or any individual. They don't require a cover note. They don't in themselves require an explanation or interpretation. They appeal to a notion of a universal language of form that may transcend cultures and precede the more figurative figures. Having said that, obviously, what an artist may attempt to make of these figures and the meanings that she may try to ascribe to them, this will, of course, require all the usual paraphernalia of assertion and elaboration through statements and manifestos and and such like. But we know these figures, uh, and we can rely on other people knowing them. They form a kind of common ground, uh, a starting point, a basic vocabulary, uh, and an extraordinary rich one at that. But while these figures may derive from basic planar geometry, uh, they are not used as geometry. Uh, Since the first decade of the 20th century, when artists such as Hilma af Klint and Malevich began to use these figures, they weren't doing maths and they weren't doing measurements. They were making shapes and patterns, motivated and complex and meaningful shapes and patterns to be sure, 
but patterns of lines and planes nonetheless. Uh, Hilma F. Clint, uh, starting picture number one, series two from 1920. Um, as I've suggested, the figures of geometry are summoned up, but they are also subverted. Every square in a Malevich is visibly not square. The lines of a Mondrian pull up short of the edge, or they overshoot the edge, and they go around the corner of the canvas. Um, I don't have an example of that, uh, but I've got a... a an image of an unfinished Mondrian from 1934, which at least shows that effort of placement and movement and shifting and balance and, and improvisation, which seems to me to be at the core of all these artists' works. Uh, in, in Mondrian's lines going around corners and so forth, in doing so, each deviates from what we think of as geometric objectivity, uh, but in doing so, it it gives their shapes and lines a vivid subjective charge. Uh, they may have appealed to the notion of universal form, but without exception, they were used in an entirely particular and personal way. And, uh, and in every case, this drama and this tension is made visible. For any theosophically inclined abstract artist, and most of them were, the figures of planar geometry may have offered a lot. But the notion of geometry was also deeply problematic, not least in its fundamental relationship with mathematics, science, rationality, system, measure, and rule. All these artists valued intuition over calculation, feelings over systems, spiritualism in some cases over science, and regarded their work as being closer to a form of meditation than mathematics. And many believed the essential interconnectedness of everything could only be grasped in intense moments of disinterested contemplation. And the work had to show this. And I maintain that in its visible departures from the, from the properly geometric, it did, I believe, exactly this, or it certainly attempted to. This ambivalence with regard to, to geometry uh, might be called psychogeometry uh, in the sense that it seems to me to have a rather similar playfulness with regard to the geometric that psychogeography has with the geographic. Uh, on the other hand, I'm not entirely convinced that replacing one label with another ever achieves a great deal. Uh, and by the way, the term psychogeometry uh, turns out to have a certain history, uh, something I discovered to my surprise over Christmas while I was writing this paper, and incidentally, after I'd used the term for the title of an exhibition in 2017. Back in 1934, the child psychologist and educationalist Maria Montessori of the Montessori schools published a book titled Psychogeometry. And in it, she noted uh, with emphasis that, quote, the process we are describing does not relate to, with emphasis, the systematic study of geometry. It is nothing more than mental exercises relative to geometry. I like the phrase mental exercises relative to geometry, because while geometry summons up the specter of rationality, order, and reason, exercises suggest something more fluid open-ended, 
versatile, personal, and not least, pleasurable. Um, The spirit of psychogeometry doesn't pervade the work of every artist associated with the Bauhaus or with other equivalent groupings uh, during the interwar period. Uh, Not at all. For example, in his theoretical writings, Le Corbusier is a a card-carrying Platonist and arch-neo-neoclassicist, if you will. Uh, But even Corb, this is a a page from uh, Towards a New Architecture, uh, an essay originally published in the the Journal of L'Esprit Nouveau in the early 1920s. And then this is a weird additional page from the same magazine which says at the bottom, this is geometry, uh, in case you mistook it for something else. And it's a school um, primer on, on geometry. Um, but even Corb seems to find it difficult to obey his own rules. In his paintings and his buildings, his paintings and his buildings rarely, if ever, match up to the essentialist and scientistic and his chromophobic rhetoric, which, of course, is exactly what makes his buildings and his paintings interesting and compelling. Uh, Back to Annie Albers. In Albers' work, this ambivalence with respect to geometry is handled differently. I love to look at the drawings that deploy a thousand right-angle triangles. Actually, as you will notice, it's 940 Uh, plus or minus 10. Um, I love to look at these works which deploy a thousand right-angle triangles in a way that makes mincemeat of any geometric orderliness uh, that the triangle may once have promised. I love the darting, saccadic patterns, the rotations and inversions of a single, simple shape, the reversal of figure ground, the jostle and the jump of two or three colours within a rudimentary grid that never looks like it's quite up to the job. In another discussion, I would talk about how Albers uses repetition to defeat repetition in a kind of joyful, migraine-esque pattern of disruptions, absences, and blind spots. Uh, And in the process, I would look at the gorgeously simple and yet infinitely complex typewriter drawings... uh, is one of them, no date, but done at Black Mountain College uh, on a, the equivalent of A4 paper, I'm assuming. And again, another beautiful um, example, again, uh, Black Mountain College, and not, not dated. Um, and I'd also look at the studies of corn kernels, uh, made using corn kernels and other found materials that were made at Black Mountain. Um, and of course, the very process of weaving itself seems to me to contain an intrinsic ambivalence both both, uh, in respect of repetition and of geometry. Um, A a detail of Red Meander from 1954. Red Meander seems to have become the most Instagrammed of uh, Alba's works from the exhibition, and I'm fine with that. Um, the loom itself must be a part of the discussion, as, as it has been, of course, throughout the day. Uh, the loom's system of warp and weft both enables uh, and invites the production of regular repeated figures of squares, rectangles, and right-angle triangles in particular. 
uh, and you can see this, as Albers did, uh, through many eras and across many, many cultures. Uh, but at the same time, even with the finest weaving, there is always a palpable materiality that both precedes and exceeds the design, a physical presence that is always a reminder of the physical labor that underlies any woven form. And however universal that form may be, the labor that produced it, that produced this particular instance of it, is always unique and always remains visible. And then, as the finished fabric is cut from the loom, this haptic presence is redoubled as the tension is released. The fabric acquires a softer shape as, and weight as it relaxes, breathes out and comes to rest, to hang and sag and settle. This tactility is the stuff of weaving, as Albers was at pains uh, to point out in her later writings and in her later emphatically textural textiles. I'm tempted to go further and to say that, at least for me, this ambivalence, this interplay of the regular and the irregular, the rigid and the relaxed, the unique and the repeated, the straight and the curved, the flat and the folded, the same and the different, this interplay of these and these relationships are intrinsic to the productions of to the production of textiles. They are its long and its parole, so to speak and are in no small part what draws us to them and perhaps uh, what has always drawn us to them. Um, and I just had a couple of examples uh, of uh, actually um, quilted works uh, from the, the G's Bend. Uh, this is uh, by uh, Annie Bentolf, Thousand Pyramids, 1930. And this is the equally marvellous... Uh, Martelene Perkins, Birds in Flight, 1940s. Um, I saw these, there was an exhibition at the Museum of Fine Arts in Houston about, I think about 15 years ago, of G's Bend Quilts. It was one of the most startlingly beautiful and, and for me, unknown bodies of work uh, that I'd seen for a very long time. And they were, incidentally, all hung on the walls as, so to speak, paintings might be, at least. And they're quite large scale, they're often about two metres square because they're quilts. Um, uh, and so to finish when all this happens when you've got all this going on in any textile work in a quilt or a woven work or um, an applique work what then becomes of your geometry Um, or to go back to my beginning to Vic Reeves question do triangles always have to be yellow one answer would be to say well, before you begin to look at the endless possibilities that variations of colour can, can and will introduce uh, to form, before you begin to ask whether triangles have to be yellow, you might have to ask whether triangles really have to be triangles. Thank you. <laughs>